Well, hey, good evening. How we doing? All right, good deal. Well, hey, uh, my name is Josh Story. I'm one of the young adult pastors here. It's good to see everybody. Uh, if you will, turn with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. We'll be hanging out there uh, tonight. Um, so I, uh, I vividly remember the first time that I learned how to shake hands. Um, and I remember because I, I, at the time I wasn't even aware there was a, a proper way to shake hands. But um, when I was about eight or nine, me and my dad were hanging out and, and we run into one of his buddies and, and his friend is like, hey son, how are you? And he sticks out his hand to shake it. And, and I go to shake, shake his hand and I just go straight limp fish on this dude. Like, I mean, just straight limp fish. And so my dad sees this happen and immediately he goes, wow, I have failed as a father. I, I have failed as a father, because my son is the guy who's going limp fish on my friends. And so, so my dad pulls me aside and he says, hey, I realize that I have neglected to teach you something. I have neglected to, to show you how to shake hands like a story, right? Because you are, you are a story, you are a part of the story family, and there is a way that we shake hands in this family, right? So you look them in the eye, you give them a firm handshake, not, not a bone-crushing hand, handshake, you aren't trying to prove yourself, right? But you're giving them a firm handshake, look them in the eye, and say, hey, nice to meet you. And I was like, cool, great. And that's how I learned how to shake, shake hands. Now, I learned something else very valuable that day. I learned that there is a certain way that you carry yourself in the story family. I learned that there's a very certain way that, that as a member of my family, you carry yourself when you interact with the outside world, right? Because there's a certain code of conduct that comes along with bearing the story name or representing the family, right? So um, the reason why I don't steal things isn't because I'm some good moral person. It's because when I was a kid, I stole a Brett Favre notebook from Oshman Sporting Goods, and my dad pulled me aside and said, hey, we don't steal things in our family, especially Packers gear, right? Like, that's just not how it works, right? We're Cowboys fans. You don't steal Packers stuff, right? Um, now, technically, just for truth, I didn't actually steal it. Um, when I asked for it, they said no, so I put the notebook in my mom's purse, and so my mom actually stole the notebook because <laughs> she was clueless. Um, but that's why I don't steal things, because there's a certain way that in the story family, we don't steal things, right? It's why um, I, I also learned that, that we don't beat people with whips, um, which sounds weird, so let me kind of explain that. Uh, I went through this major Indiana Jones phase as a kid, and, uh, and so for Christmas, my parents bought me a bullwhip, which is awesome, because who doesn't want to get a bullwhip for Christmas? And so I spent all year trying to like hone my Indiana Jones whip skills, and to make a long story short, one day my friend was over, and I was trying to show him how amazing I was in my whip skills, and I definitely like botched that moment, and I whipped him. Um, it was really dark. Don't judge, judge me. Like, like, like y'all don't have a my Indiana Jones impression went horribly wrong story, right? Like, we all have one. It's fine, right? But I learned in the moment, hey, like, like, we don't whip people. That's just not how we function in the family, right? Now, I bring that up because every family has a code of conduct. Every family, whether you realize it or not, there is a certain way that you are to carry yourself as a representative of your family, right? And those codes may look drastically different, but everybody has one, right? And I bring that up because in Ephesians, we've spent the first three chapters walking through um, our adoption, and what it means for us that, that we have been adopted into the family of God, that, that when Christ went to the cross for us, he didn't just die for us, but he adopted us. Right, that we are now called sons and daughters if you are in Christ. And so now what happens is that, like any family, there is a certain way that we carry ourselves as a part of the family. 
right? That, that when we interact with the outside world, because you now bear the name of Christian, there's a certain way that God calls you to carry yourself. There's a certain code of conduct that we're supposed to have when we interact with the outside world. So what I want us to do tonight is really simple. I want us to read three verses in Ephesians 4 and, and to kind of unpack what this code of conduct looks like, right? Because there's a certain way that we're called to carry ourselves as the members or as members of the family of God. There's a certain way that as we represent the family, we are to kind of interact with the outside world. Um, now, before we start, let me just clarify something. As a kid, when, when I learned that there was this kind of expectation and there was this kind of code that you lived by as a representative of the story name, I didn't follow the code because I was afraid of my dad. Like, like I, I didn't follow the code because I was afraid of what might happen if I didn't follow the code. No, I honored the code because I had a love for my father. I had an understanding that, hey, I, I love being a part of this family. Like, this is a, a fun family to be a part of. And so out of a, a love and respect for my family, I wanted to bear the name of story well, right? So as believers, the reason why we step into the world and we want to carry ourselves in a way that brings honor and glory to our Father is not because we're afraid of him, but because we love him. Because we understand the gravity of our adoption. We understand what it means to be in the family of God. So, so I want to clarify that because maybe you're walking in the room and you have some sort of church background where you were taught as a kid that, that, that what pleases God, that what makes God like you is if you do a bunch of things or you follow a certain set of rules. And that's not how it works. We're not accepted because we, we do things. God has already accepted us because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Now, this is just a response. We, we carry ourselves in a certain way. We want to rep the family well, not because we're afraid of God, but because we love God and we're grateful for what he has done for us on the cross. And, and the reality is that there's a bunch of people walking around in the world who bear the name of Christian, who, who claim to be a part of the family of God, but they look nothing like their father. They look nothing like the father that they so boldly claim. And so what I want for us is that when we walk out of these doors, when we carry ourselves and people know that you are part of the family of God, that you are a Christian, that you carry yourself in a way that, that reflects our father accurately. Because whether you realize it or not, you represent your heavenly father. And so the question tonight is, do you represent him well? So that's what we're going to be diving into. So with that being said, let's dive into Ephesians 4, we'll be starting in verse 1. Paul says this, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. All right, stop right there for a sec. Um, Paul is saying, hey, there is a calling to which you have been called that is so glorious, that is so amazing, that is so valuable that there is a certain way that you should respond there's a certain way that you should carry yourself in response to the calling. And on the flip side, there's a way that you can carry yourself that is insulting. There's a way that you can carry yourself that, that reveals that you don't understand the gravity of the calling. Now, the calling that he's talking about is our adoption. Right? He says that you've, been, you've been called to the Father. We've been adopted into the family of God. And he says, so now I urge you to walk in a manner that reveals that you understand the gravity of what's going on here. You're walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, the, the calling that you've been called as sons and daughters, right? And, and, and just kind of on a side note, anytime in Scripture that, that Paul or anybody says, hey, I urge you, like, like I implore you, I, I urge you, it's because we're not good at it. 
Like, like Paul never urges us to do things that we're naturally great at. He urges us to do things that we fail at all the time. So, so, so know going, going forward that, that this isn't just a natural thing. We don't just, just kind of wander into living lives that, that, that reflect this well. So um, now Paul's about to explain what this um, worthiness looks like, what, what this code of conduct, so to speak, looks like. In verse 2, it says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's it. That's what Paul says. He says, hey, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so what this looks like is four things I'll put up on the screen. is that we are marked by humility. We are marked by gentleness. We are marked by patiently bearing with one another. We are marked by fighting for oneness. Okay, that's the code. When, when, when Paul says, hey, you represent the family, this is what you should do. This is how you should carry yourself if you want to represent our Father well, right? And so, so what I want us to do for the rest of our time is I just want to unpack these. So if you're a note taker, we'll just kind of go through this. So let me start with humility. He says, our lives should be marked by humility. Now, here's what's interesting about the word for humility here that Paul uses. It's a word that in the Greek it means a deep sense of one's littleness. So that you are to be marked by a, a deep sense of your littleness. You're supposed to be marked by a deep sense of how small you are in comparison to the glory of God. Not that we think less of ourselves, but that we, that we just have a proper understanding of who we are, our stature, in compared to the glory of God, which is small. Right? Now, that should be easy for a people who understand the nature of our adoption. Because the nature of our adoption is that our sin separates us from God and we are stuck. Ephesians says we are dead in our sin, right? We are absolutely helpless towards sin. So what happens is that we need a savior, right? Because we're not good enough. We can't earn our way to God. We can't do anything to, to, to earn right standing. No, what we need is a savior, because we're sinners, enslaved by sin. That's why Jesus had to come. So, so understanding how little we are in comparison to the glory of God shouldn't be hard if we understand the nature of our adoption. But here's the problem. This isn't typically how we function. We don't typically function with a deep sense of our smallness or our littleness. We function in a way where we want people to see how amazing we are. We function in a way that we want people to, to marvel at us and, and not our Father. And there's a really basic answer for why. It's because that's how we get ahead in our culture. Right? I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Like, like if you want to be humble, there's a certain level of, man, I don't know if I can get ahead because if I'm not noticed, then I don't know how I get ahead in life. So, um, for instance, when you look at work, it's very rare for you to, to, to enter or, or for people to, to interact at work in a way where we have a deep sense of our, of our smallness because that's not how you get noticed, right? If you want to get noticed and you want to get promoted, I mean, you have to, to let people know how valuable you are to the company, right? I mean, if you're killing your quarter, you need to let people know that. If you're nailing your quota, you need to let people know that. If you're saving the company money, people need to know how, value, how valuable you are to the co company. So we don't lead with humility because you get overlooked. The person who gets promoted is the person who is, who is known, who everyone knows what they bring to the table. So the way that we function is, I'm going to let you know what I bring to the table. Because we don't function with humility. We function with, hey, I need to be noticed because that's how I get ahead in life. 
right? Or let's talk about um, the, the desire for a spouse. I know there's a, um, a chunk of us in the room that are, are, are single and you desire a spouse. And that's a great desire, right? But let's, let's be honest about how you get noticed in a crowd, right? Like if you have a crush on somebody in the room, you don't get noticed by being humble, right? Who gets noticed? It's the person who's the center of attention. It's the interesting person. It's the funny person. It's the person that has all the stories. It's the one that has, has a really cool, interesting life. And so, and so if you approach a, a group setting with, oh, man, I'm going to be humble, let's be honest, there's, there's a certain fear of, like, that's not how I get noticed. And if I don't get noticed, I don't get a date. So I don't lead with humility. I lead with what can I do to be noticed? How can I compete? How, how can I function in a way that you notice who I am, that you think that I'm interesting, right? Or let's say that you get a date. Congrats, that's huge, proud of you, right? <laughs> but how do we come into a first date? What do we go in thinking? We want a second date, right? So, so what do you do in our minds to get a second date? You don't lead with humility. You lead with how can I prove to this person that I'm worthy of being dated? How can I prove to the person across the table that they are lucky to be in my presence? How can I prove to that person that, that I am a catch? So we lead with funny stories and I'm interesting and look at me, look at me. But we don't lead with humility because there's just a certain reality in our culture that you might get overlooked. No one wants that. But what if we've been lied to? What if we've been lied to? What if the way that you actually get noticed isn't by screaming, look at me, but it's to be humble? It's to have a, a confidence rooted in the fact that, man, I don't have to be noticed. I'm confident in this fact that, man, my God is big, and I don't have to brag on me because I would rather brag on my father. What if in a culture where everyone is screaming, look at me, it is a foreign concept to be humble? And that's what actually makes pe people take notice. Maybe not, I don't know. But the reality is that a lot of us don't know because we've never tried it before. So let's try to, to lead with humility because that's what we're called to. When you interact with the outside world, we're supposed to be marked by people who have a deep sense of our smallness, but not in an insecure way, in a way that we have a confidence because we're small, but our God is big. We're part of his family. He has adopted us. So man, I don't have to be noticed because I'm trying to get him noticed. Let me keep, keep going. The second thing that Paul says is that our lives should be marked not just by humility, but by gentleness, by gentleness. Now, here's the problem with gentleness. Here's why this is so hard. We typically associate gentleness with weakness, right? We think that strength and gentleness can't be used in the same sentence. That's false. You can be strong and be gentle, right? We see that in Christ, right? Jesus it was this amazing combination of strength and gentleness, right? I mean, I mean, he was, he was aggressive, let's be honest, right? When, when, when Jesus walked into the temple of God and he saw people turning the house of worship into um, a marketplace, he started overthrowing tables and, and, and yelling at people and telling them to get out, right? That's strong, that's aggressive. When, when, the, religious, when the religious leaders of the day started to lead people astray, he called them a brood of vipers. He bowed up and said, hey, you are whitewashed tombs. Yeah, you look squeaky clean on the outside, but you're rotting on the inside. That's aggressive, right? When, 
when Jesus is on the cross and he's allowing his own creation to drive nails through his wrists and nails through his feet and they're spitting on him and they're mocking him, what does he do? He doesn't smite them. He doesn't destroy them, which he can because he's God. No, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Do you know what kind of strength it takes to utter those words when you have all the power in the world to end it in a moment? Jesus was incredibly strong, but he's also gentle. Because on the flip side, we see a guy that, that when everyone else devalued kids and, and, and wanted the kids to stay away, he, he welcomed kids and he elevated their status. In, in John 8, when a woman caught in adultery comes, is brought before a crowd and is drugging the crowd naked, Jesus' response is to say, hey, I know all of you guys want a stoner, but whoever is without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. And these guys, one by one, began to walk away. And he bent down, and he looked at her, and he said, hey, where are your accusers? She said, they've left. He says, yeah, I don't accuse you either. I don't condemn you either. Get up and go and sin no more. He handled that with, with gentleness and compassion. I think the, the craziest picture of gentleness in, in the entire Bible is, is, is when um, Jesus is, is about to be arrested, that the the guards come to arrest him, and, and Peter goes all crazy, and, and he takes this sword, and he cuts off the ear of one of the guards. And what Jesus does in that moment is he bends down, he picks up the ear, and he gently puts it back on his head. One, that's crazy, because he just put the ear back on the head. That would freak me out, right? <laughs> but second, I don't know how you're wired, but if I was in that spot, I'd be like, that's how my squad rolls, bro. What you gonna do? <laughs> oh, you can't hear me because you ain't got no ear. Yeah, okay, I, I see you, right? Like, no, like, but that's not how J Jesus rolls. Like, he, he, he gently, in that moment, he says, I, I know that you're here to kill me. Here's your ear back. It's crazy, right? That's so gentle, and, and, and that's who we have in our Savior. So, so we model gentleness because that's who our Savior is, because we have a God who is both strong and gentle, because you see, what Jesus does is Jesus is strong and aggressive towards sin and evil, but he is gentle towards people in need of grace. So the question is, is that what you look like? Are you, are you strong and aggressive towards the sin and, and the evil in the world, but are you gentle towards people who are in desperate need of grace? Because if you're not, you're not repping the family like you could be. We're called to be humble, but we're also called to be gentle. Thirdly, says that we are to be people who, with patience, bear with one another. That we patiently bear with one another. This is hard because people suck, if we're honest. Um, people are sinners, right? Like, if, if you've ever tried to, to interact with people, what happens is that, man, when you do life with other sinners, you just inevitably have conflict, Right? And so to, to patiently bear with one another is really, really hard because we don't like conflict. It's easier to bail than to bear, right? But we're patient because that's what God does for us, right? Like, like I am so grateful for the patience of God, that, that God patiently bears with me because I don't know about you, but I'm spiritually slow. It takes me a while to get stuff, right? And so, so there are, are things that I've been struggling with for years, for years, and if I were God, I'm not, but if I were, I, I feel like I would look at me and say, are you serious, bro? Like, how long have you been following me? How long have you been reading my word? How long have you been going to church and singing the songs and raising your hands? Like, how long have we been doing this thing? Like, I'm, like, I'm, I'm out. Like, 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 you are a lost cause, bro, but that's not what he does. 
Our God is steadfast. He's not going where he is patient. He pursues us despite who we are, despite the fact that we run and we, and we rebel and that when Christ went to the cross, he went knowing our tendency to wander, and he went anyway. We have a God who is patient, that he bears with us. And so the question is, is that how our lives look? Do we carry ourselves in a way that when people see us, that, that they say, man, that person, they, they're, they're patient, they, they bear with each other. And I think that the easiest way to kind of do a self-evaluation is to look how you engage community. Because do you, do you bail on friendships when things get difficult? Do you tend to, to distance yourself or disassociate yourself from people when they do stuff that you don't like? Because if so, you, you tend to bail rather than to bear. So let me show, show you how I kind of see this play out. One of the ways that I see this play out a lot in, in young adult cult, culture um, is that we get really frustrated with, circumst- or with people, but we should be frustrated with circumstances, right? And so what happens is that we tend to, to bail when we're actually called to, to be patient and bear with one another. And so let me explain it. Um, when you're in college, you experience what I call the ideal community. So we have it up on the screen. And here's what the ideal community t- like can consist of. Proximity, meaning that, meaning that everybody is close. Time, that, that, that you have an abundance of time. Even if you're busy, you still have time. That you all have the similar relationship status, right? In college, this is what everybody gets to experience, right? That, that, that everyone is close. You have proximity. You have an abundance of time. And, and everyone is generally in the same relationship status, right? Now, here's, here's the problem with that. In college, we experience that for four years, for four years, we get the ideal community. And since that's our first taste of adulthood, what happens is that we believe that's how the world works. We think this is how community looks, right? And then you graduate and you realize that's not how the world works. But it takes a few, to- like a few years to really understand it, right? And what happens is that if one of these things disappears, we get frustrated with a person when really what's changed isn't the person, but it's the situation, right? So, so for instance, let's say that, that you lose proximity, right? Um, that you graduate college, you stay in Fort Worth, but your best friend moves to Dallas, let's say, right? At some point in time, you're going to feel a distance. It's called 45 miles, right? But, but you'll feel a distance. <laughs> and what happens is that you turn to your friend and say, man, I, I just feel like things have changed. I feel like you aren't the same anymore, that we've just kind of grown apart. Like, you know, I never see you anymore. Yeah, because I live in Dallas, we used to live across the street. Like, like, I don't live across the street anymore. It takes, it takes work. It takes, it takes effort. But if you don't understand that what's changed isn't the person but the proximity, if you don't understand that, then what happens is that you tend to, to distance yourself and you tend to bail rather than to bear with patience and say, all right, things have changed, so let's, let's f- figure out how to make this thing work and how to keep this friendship alive, right? Or let's say that time disappears. Let's say that you have a job that has a ton of flexibility, right? And you can kind of do whatever and take long lunches and all this other stuff. But you have a friend who is chained to a desk for 55 hours a week, right? Which is pretty normal. All of a sudden, what will happen if you don't understand that what's ch- changed is the time is that you begin to look at your friend and say, man, like, you've, you've changed. Like, we're off. Like, like, every time that I ask you to hang out, you're, like, busy or you're working, you're doing all sorts of stuff. And, man, I feel like this just isn't how friendship is supposed to work. And your friend is like, yeah, because I'm chained to a desk for 55 hours a week. And they feel guilty because it's not that they don't want to hang out. They just can't, right? But if you don't understand that what's changed is the time and not the person, then you tend to bail and you write them off because you're like, ah, oh, man, they've, they, they've, they've changed. They're hanging around anymore. They're, they're like, busy. 
Or let's say that one of your friends starts to date, right, and their relationship status ch- changes, and all of a sudden you're like, man, I, don't, I never see you anymore, and we're not really friends anymore, and you're always with that person, and side note, they're not always with that person because of the, because of the time part, um, but you look at it, and you forget that, yeah, I have this new person that I need to invest in. That's how relationships work, right? And if you don't understand that what's changed is the relationship status, then you tend to just write pe- people off. Because what's happening is that so often, we don't patiently bear with one another. We don't do the hard, messy work of trying to figure out what's changed. And we write off the person and not the circumstance. So the question is, man, look at your community. How, how do you interact with each other? Are you prone to just bail on relationships or distance yourselves or disassociate yourselves from people rather than doing the hard work of patiently bearing with one another? Because if you do, then you're not ripping the family well. Our lives should be marked by, man, we are patiently bearing with one another, doing the hard, messy work of building that community. Let me finish with this last one. We're called to humility. We're called to be gentle. We're called to patiently bear with one another. And we're called to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Or another way of saying that is that we're called to fight for oneness. I think this might be one, if not the most important, maybe the, one of the most important aspects of this entire list. Because this is specifically what Jesus prayed for for us. So, so in the garden, as he's about to be crucified, as he's about to be arrested, he starts praying and he prays for his disciples and he prays for their ministry, but then he changes. And so in John 17, Jesus says, says this. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those, those meaning us, those who will believe in me through their word, meaning the word of the disciples, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus, as he's about to go to the cross, could be praying about anything. But he stops and he prays for us. He prays for the generations of people who will come to believe in him through the preaching of the word. And he says, what I desire most for them is that they be one. That they're one. They're they're unified. They're one. Why? Because that's how people will know the love of the Father. Because people will, will, will be drawn to the Father by our oneness. Now, here's why that's a problem, or why, or why that's hard. We don't typically gravitate towards oneness. We gravitate towards sameness, and those are different. We gravitate towards sameness because it's easy, right? Because it's really easy to, to just surround yourself with people that look like you, that act like you, that um, believe like you, right? That's why if you walk into the average church in America, everyone's going to look alike, Because sameness is easy. Oneness is glorious, but it's messy. Because it means that you're doing life with people who don't look like you, believe like you, act like you. Yet, despite how different you are, you're you're one. And that's what makes people take a step back and say, you gotta explain that to me. 
You gotta explain to me how, how that person and that person and that person can, can, can interact with each other and to be, to be one. And what that does is it opens the door for us to talk about the love of our Father. Because people don't marvel at God when they see our sameness. They marvel at God when they see our oneness because that doesn't make any sense. Sameness makes a lot of sense. Oneness doesn't, right? And so the question is, when you look at the way that you carry yourself, are we fighting for oneness? Are we fighting for oneness, right? Are we fighting for, for oneness with, with people who don't believe like us? Now, let me just say, there's a bunch of different ch- churches in this city, right? And we do not see eye to eye on everything. There are churches in the city that that we don't see eye to eye on with ministry philosophy, with ecclesiology. We don't see eye to eye with with secondary theological issues. Not all of us are are going to agree on everything. But if they are a church that is preaching the gospel, that is centered on the word of God, and desires to make disciples in the city who love Jesus, and the gospel is, is at the center, then it's not our job to trip them up. It's not our job to be divisive because that doesn't reflect well on our father. That doesn't reflect the family well. People don't marvel at our God if they're too distracted by our kind of divisive pettiness. Now, now, now is theology important? Absolutely it is. Do we believe things for a reason? We absolutely do. But so often people don't get to see the love of the father because they see this kind of petty divisiveness. So if we're all running the same race, we don't trip our brothers and sisters up because we don't like their running form. That's not how we operate. We fight for oneness. Yeah, it's messy and it's hard and we can disagree on stuff. We, we don't have to see eye to eye, but if the gospel is at the center, man, we are running in the same race. We're fighting for oneness. And I see this too play out in, in the way that we hand, handle race relations. And one of the most divisive things that can possibly happen for a believer is when people who have never experienced racism boldly declare that racism doesn't exist because they've never personally experienced it. That's just divisive. When, when, when someone raises their hand and says, hey, I'm hurting, I'm suffering, hey, I, I need a hand up, I, I need someone to recognize my pain and, and, and help this, the problem. If our initial response is to say, no, you're not, that's divisive. And that looks nothing like Jesus. If, if, if our response isn't to, to lean in and say, hey, what's, what's going on? How can we help? How, 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 how can we reconcile what's going on here? How can we fight to be one despite our differences? If that's not our posture, then we're not repping the family well. And what breaks my heart is there are people all over the country who, who bear the name of Christian, who brag on a God, yet when people see their lives, they look nothing like their father. My prayer is that that's not said about us in this room. My prayer is that when we walk out of these doors and people see us, the way that we carry ourselves, we are marked by humility. We're marked by gentleness. We're marked by, by, by patience. We're marked by fighting for oneness. Not sameness, but oneness. And just imagine for a second what would happen if we did. Imagine for a second what God might do in the city of Fort Worth if, if we looked like Jesus. If when they saw us, what happened is that they saw this, this posture. They, they saw a family that actually acted like a family. That was different. 
Imagine if people skeptical of what we believe couldn't argue with how well we loved each other. Imagine if people skeptical of what we believe just couldn't argue with how humble and gentle we were, how patient we were, and that, and that moved them, that, that stirred them, that, that made them want to ask, okay, something's different about you. You, you got to explain that to me. Imagine if people skeptical of what we believe looked at the people in this room and said, that makes no sense to me. I don't know how, how him and her and, and he and she, like, 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 I don't know how they get along with each other. That, that makes no sense. And it allowed us to talk and brag about our father, to rep the family well. That's my hope. That's my prayer. So the question is, man, how are you doing? Because whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, when you bear the name Christian, you are representing the family of God. You are representing your father. The question is, are you representing him well? Let me pray. Father, I, I thank you that you care enough about us to lay out for us instructions on, on how to, to represent you well. And not out of fear, not out of guilt or out of shame or out of a fear of what might happen if we don't, but when we understand the gravity of our adoption, Father, may that move us to a place where we wanna change, that we wanna carry ourselves in a certain way. We, we want to represent you well because we understand the gravity of what we've been saved from. We understand the privilege that it is to be a part of the family, to have a seat at the table, and that we didn't earn that, that we didn't do anything to deserve that, yet you graciously gave that to us. So Father, may our lives look different out of a love for you, out of a desire.